episode number 62, Connor Moore. Welcome back to The Title Block, a podcast about Canadian theatre designers, their history, and their craft. I am, as usual, your host, Michael Cruz, and this time my penultimate Vancouver design interview with set lighting and projection designer, Connor Moore. Connor and I met at his home in Vancouver in December of 2018, and we discuss his journey from Queen's University in Kingston to his master's at UBC and his work with Bart on the Beach and other splendid Vancouver companies. We also talk extensively about his work in the theatre labour movement and the future of work for theatre designers. I hope that you are continuing to weather these tough times as the theatres are shut down and we are in stasis waiting to return to making art for a live audience. Please, if you can, consider giving to the Actors Fund of Canada at afchelps.org. Connor is also my co-host and a facilitator for the new limited series The Title Block Live on our YouTube channel every Thursday night, 8pm Eastern, 5 Pacific. This past week we had another great discussion about collaboration between disciplines and we will be facilitating more discussions about the changing and uncertain face of Canadian theatre as seen through a design lens. Once again, I will not be charging the wonderful supporters at Patreon.com while we all pause, but I thank you for all your past and future support. And don't forget to visit thetitleblock.com to see the show notes for a deeper dive about the companies and people we talk about on the show. Now, here's my interview with designer Connor Moore. Connor Moore is a lighting and projection designer based in Vancouver, British Columbia. Uh, he's a graduate of the UBC uh, MFA program, and we spoke to, last time on the podcast, we spoke to uh, Robert Gardner, uh, and so I think it's fitting that we then talk about one of the people who actually came out of that program and has been working in Vancouver for the last uh, eight or nine years. Uh, Connor, welcome to the Title Block. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. Awesome. So tell me how you started in this business. You're not from Vancouver originally, right? You grew up near and in, in around Kingston, Ontario, right? That's correct. Tell me how you found your way into theater and <laughs> why you thought this was a good idea. Fair enough. I'm sure everybody has like a similar like kind of like weird story of how they got into theater. Sure. Mine is no different. Um, in high school, I was very much into like... Uh, studying history and politics and social activism. But then I dated a girl who was on the like NDSS improv team. So she basically like dragged me onto the improv team. And then we broke up uh, shortly afterwards. But I was already sort of like into the theater crowd there. So I like I did a couple I couple of high school productions. I think I was the like lighting technician on like a student written like show called Waking Shakespeare all about a horrible show about like reimagining the bard mm-hmm. but i sort of got a little bit of taste a little taste of theater in high school mm-hmm. and then went to queen's university mm-hmm. in kingston intending to study history and politics mm-hmm. and i took the first year theater course for fun basically right. absolutely hated the politics class oh, like it was way too conservative for my taste right. so it's like ugh. Yeah to hell with that and just sort of fell into theater at Queens and the Queens University drama department doesn't have any specialized streams like you can't focus on performance or tech or design you pretty much have to take classes in all of it to get enough credits to graduate so it's more of a it's more of like a drama program like an academic drama program Definitely. than a performance or a conservatory kind of base for sure yeah but basically, by the end of my third year, I like I had tried acting, directing, playwriting, miserable failures across the board. <laughs> okay. But I was like less bad at design than everything else. So I started focusing on design and spent sort of the last two years at Queens doing as much design work as I could. Right. And then at the end of that, I felt like I still wanted more training. Mm-hmm. So applied to the four... MFA programs in design that existed at the time, all in the Western schools, mm-hmm. and ended up getting accepted at UBC. 
and came out here and completed the UBC program and then loved it here in Vancouver and have been here ever since. That's great. Uh, who was your cohort there at UBC? Like who was in the same? They, they, uh, there's only what, four or five people in the graduate, in the design program per year. Is that right? How that works? There's or? only two MFA oh, two. designers oh, per year. So there's your two and then the two in the year before. So the other designer in my cohort was Anna Luisa Espinoza, who I don't believe has stayed in Vancouver. But Carmen Alatore mm -hmm. was the year above me, uh, who's one of the, the best, if not the best, costume designer in Vancouver right now. And she, we worked together on Romeo and Juliet mm -hmm. at UBC and have designed a bunch of shows together uh, since then. That's great. And how about anybody at uh, Queens who you still keep in contact with? That, or was that just the nature of the program? that? Uh, there's a couple Queens grads that are doing quite well for themselves in Toronto that were my year. Notably, Tom McGee and Kat Sandler, oh, who's right. a really well-known Canadian playwright now. Like, Mustard was just done here in Vancouver mm -hmm. and was spectacular. And I designed a couple shows for Kat while we were at Queen's together. Mm -hmm. And, like, I wish I'd, like, grabbed on tighter to those <laughs> coattails because she's turned into an absolute superstar. It is remarkable, eh, how those relationships you build early kind of make a difference, eh? And, uh, and as a designer, it is also important to kind of find directors that you can follow around because they're the ones, or playwrights are the ones that are going to, like, keep you working, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and then you decided to stay here in Vancouver. Um, what, uh, what was your first... Um, when you left uh, the, the program here, what were the first kind of shows you were doing? Uh, well, I was doing, as most designers do, like a lot of small, independent shows. Uh, I think, like I did what they told me to do at UBC, which is basically like, once you graduate, like email every theater company in the city and like tell them that you're here. And like, so I sent out 100 emails and I got, two in response, mm -hmm. I think, but one was from Headlines Theater, mm -hmm. who became Theater for Living, who mm. uh, uh, recently uh, sort of shut down production, unfortunately, mm -hmm. but I got to work with David Diamond right out of school uh, on the f doing his like, forum theater, mm -hmm. um, and that was sort of exactly what I would, had been looking for, like politically and socially aware theater. Mm -hmm. And also the company made a point of paying designers really well. Oh, right. So my first show at a UBC, I was like really highly paid. And I was like, great, like, well, this is going to be a spectacular career. You've made it. Yep. And yeah. then it took like four years until I got paid that much again, right. uh, basically. Yeah, that's, that's pretty typical, too. Um, tell me about the show. What was the show uh, about? And, and do you remember, were you, were you the lighting and projection designer on that? or uh, I was just the lighting designer mm -hmm. on it, and mm -hmm. it was called After Homelessness. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think, I think Yvonne Morissette was the set designer on it, and uh, Conde was the sound designer, if I remember correctly. And sort of the headlines theater model is to get community participants mm -hmm. together they collectively devise a 30-minute show mm -hmm. and then put it on for an audience and then they start at the beginning again, go through the show, and the aud audience members can yell stop at any point, come down, intervene, try to find solutions to the issues the characters are facing. Right. So like all the community participants were people who had either were currently homeless or had experienced homelessness, so it was you know, as, basically as authentic as it could right. possibly be. That's awesome. I like verbatim theater and uh, that's kind of community-based theater. It's all, like, it's a terrific, it's a terrific application of theater as a mechanism for social change too, right? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, and then um, what was your, so that's, that's a smaller show. Um, what was your next, what was your first kind of um, big show after that? Um, like the, uh, you were at the um, arts club in the review stage. Uh, and you ended up at Shaw Festival at some point, so um, we'll get there eventually. But um, uh, when when did you start sort of designing in bigger houses, or what was your first kind of breakout kind of hit? Uh, I think that was probably doing video design down at Bart on the Beach in 2010 and 2011. Right. Um, so I had assisted Alan Brody uh, on the lighting design for Richard the... 
second and All's Well That Ends Well in 2009 and got to know the production manager, Spikey Lawrence, through that process. And he knew that I was a video designer and they needed a video designer the next year. So he sort of called me up at the last minute and I ended up doing the video design for uh, Falstaff that year for Glynis uh, Leishon. And then the year after that, uh, doing video for uh, Henry the sixth and also Richard the third. Great. Uh, and my understanding is that you didn't have a great love of projections before, prior to coming to UBC. Right? Tell me about how you came over to the, to, to believe that it was a good practice. To the dark side. Yeah. Um, yeah. When I was doing my undergraduate degree at Queens, there were like a couple people experimenting with projections, but it was a very kind of like Mickey mouse home entertainment projectors and you know, constant technical malfunctions and no one really knew what they were doing. And like, I hated it. I thought video was terrible. I came out to UBC and started studying under Robert Gardner and I sort of had an awakening of like, oh, like this is what video is supposed to be like. And so learned an immense amount from Robert, even to the point where the my thesis design at UBC, MK Wojciech, was lit entirely with projectors. So there was no stage lights whatsoever, but six projectors akin to what Robert's work was, basically. So it is everything I know about projection I learned from Robert initially, and I'm immensely grateful for it. And then, like even now, I think there's still probably a lack of video designers in the city, but in 2010, 2011, even more so. So... You know, even though I was relatively inexperienced, I was able to get those early mm-hmm. Bard on the Beach video design experiences. Yeah. Uh, and then tell me, we talked about Bard on the Beach with Mara Gottler uh, a couple episodes ago, um, but we didn't talk about the actual space. Uh, and my understanding is it's not a permanent venue. Tell me about uh, what the venue's like and how they put it up and tear it down and what it's like to work in, in, in it as well. Absolutely. Um, when I was working there in... Initially, they had, they still had like the older uh, main stage tent that they've since replaced, but the studio stage tent is still the same, although they've shifted the configuration on it. But in 2010, 2011, there was a lot of daylight. Uh, so there was really like no hope of doing any projections and very little lighting during act one at all. Um, so it certainly puts kind of a different spin on how to conceptualize a video or a lighting design when so much of the first half of the show takes place essentially in sunlight. Recently, um, between the new made stage tent and sort of a reconfiguration of the studio stage tent, you get a lot more darkness. Mm -hmm. Like I did Merchant of Venice there in 2017, Mm -hmm. and we were able to do projections right off the top. Mm -hmm. So uh, thankfully from a lighting video design perspective, like we're able to do more and more now uh, than we used to. Is this because the tent is, uh, is not opaque? Uh, no, it's, gonna... it's totally opaque, mm-hmm. but uh, the, on the main stage, the basically upstage wall is open so that you can see out over the, over the broad inlet and it's a gorgeous view. But it, you know, you have the world's brightest light shining through there. Yeah, it's a backlight as well, which exactly. is exactly yeah. Now you have to overcome that and shoot all this light front light to sort of overcome totally. it, right? And the studio stage used to be open like that as well, but they've basically like zipped all the corners shut recently, so you're pretty dark right off the top of the show. Great. And when does the show start? Like a, a traditional start time, 7.30 or 8 o'clock? Or? Uh, they used to start at 8, and then they bumped it back to 7.30, which there was some like consternation again amongst the like video and lighting designer. But with the length of the show, I think they got like audience comments about like a desire for a slightly earlier start. That makes sense. Uh, and then... Uh, what is, uh, do they, are you bringing in, you're bringing in all the gear, obviously it's all rented gear, or do they own stuff, or? Um, Lighting-wise, it's a mixture of the two. Uh, Video-wise, they own some stuff, so I think the first two years there, I used their, like, house projector, basically, Mm -hmm. but 
when I did Merchant of Venice, they managed to pair with a local theater company, Boca del Lupo, mm-hmm. who does a lot of, who do a lot of projection work. So we had four of their high powered projectors in there. Great. So they're sort of de- show dependent, sort of on where the gear comes from. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's great, though. You have lots of choice and a lot of different positions, right? Absolutely. That's awesome. Um, great. And then when um, when you started project designing as a projection designer. Um, First of all, like I understand that you've done both uh, for several shows. That's a lot of work these days <laughs> to be a projection designer and a lighting designer. Like back in the back in the day, back in my day, uh, when we had projections, it was like a, a Pony projector with one slide was fixed, uh, or it was a you know slide projector, an actigraph or whatever. Um, and so we could manage that. Uh, but now with rendering and movement and everything else, it's a lot more work. How do you juggle those two and? Do you think it's fair to ask someone <laughs> to do that, right? I mean, I think it's I think it's fair if they're properly compensated to do both jobs. Uh, I feel like most of the time the correct amount of compensation isn't there, which is, but also also a larger issue across all of the design disciplines, of course. Yeah. Sometimes I really enjoy doing both, like in terms of the control that it gives you to make sure that they both work well together. Mm-hmm. Because I've been on both sides of either being the lighting designer who's washing out all of the video or being the video designer who's having all the video washed out. Mm-hmm. So it's nice when you can uh, mitigate that by doing both jobs. Mm-hmm. The one nice thing is that I found that it's you can just barely make the two jobs fit together in terms of doing most of the content creation before tech starts. Mm-hmm. So that once tech starts, you're more focused on the lighting design during Q to Q. And then even if there are content changes to be made, it takes so long to do them that that's a sort of like overnight job anyways. Mm -hmm. So it is possible to fit them together if you're okay with like an 18 to 20 hour tech day between time in the room and then time at home, like rendering stuff to have it ready for the next day. Yeah. That's a lot of work. It's a I, lot of work. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine why you'd also want to be compensated well for it because that's a that's. Um, I mean, also it's hard, it's more difficult to sort of jam more projects together because now you've got twice the work. It's basically two designs at the same time, so you can't do like four or five in a month, which is what sometimes it takes to. Oh, exactly. Make the cash, especially in October and you know in the spring <laughs> when it's all busy. Um, so. Give me some examples. We talked about the Bard on the Beach stuff. How about examples um, outside of Bard on the Beach that you were um, really excited about as far as projections go? Um, maybe the... Um, let's talk about the Pipeline show, actually. Sure. Um, uh, tell me, first of all, tell me about the, the context for this, and uh, and then we'll talk about your approach and as an example of, of how you work. For sure. So uh, Pipeline Project was a co-production between... It's a Zoo Productions, uh, run by Chelsea Habilin and Sebastian Archibald, and Savage Society, uh, run by Kevin Loring. And it was an examination of the pipelines that are running through British Columbia, mm-hmm. but from a very, uh, very kind of like meta, almost laid back perspective like the show involved the three writers were the three performers Mm -hmm. and a lot of the show was their conversations they'd had in devising the piece on stage so the three the three performers kevin loring sebastian archibald and walemia sparrow who are the the writers and the performers like a, a lot of the sort of the conversations they had about how to properly discuss the issues of pipelines and indigenous sovereignty were just almost put on stage verbatim and it was by far the most interesting part of the show um and i was the lighting and video designer for that show i had worked with chelsea uh, on a show before and we had really clicked and she brought she knew that i liked to do work like this Uh, so she brought me on board and like sort of like the process i detailed before like i spent so much time in advance creating all this video content um, and there was a, like a ton of nude footage that was used in the show about pipeline issues. Um, but then also just 
a, like a bunch of like environment, environmental content about disasters and pipelines uh, and such. And also the performers sort of had ideas for sort of like animated sequences they wanted to sort of help express the things that they were talking about on stage. Right. So like did probably like hundreds of hours of work in advance of tech and uh, working on this video content. Yeah. And then once we got into tech, like sort of half switched hats and became the lighting designer. Right. Thankfully on this show, um, both conceptually and because of the technical limitations, Chelsea and I decided on like an ultra simple lighting design. Like it was essentially because also because it was in the round. Mm. So it was basically just like a monochromatic wash mm -hmm. with a couple of IQ specials for key moments. Mm -hmm. So like once we basically kind of like got the lighting design sort of like roughed in, mm -hmm. it was actually, we actually ended up doing a ton more like video work during that technical process, especially because there was also a really comprehensive sound design as well. Mm -hmm that uh, Troy Slocum composed. So him and I had to work like really closely in collaboration, sort of making sure the video and the sound was properly supporting each other. Right. Uh, how did you guys deal? So first of all, I have so many questions. Um, how <laughs> did you first deal with rights management when it came to stuff like the news uh, content and those clips? Is that just uh, like fair use because it's uh, fair, like, uh, like public comment? Or how did you deal with all that stuff and getting your hands on that? Uh, essentially, yes. Um, for like news footage and stuff like that, I was just scouring from YouTube and from the internet and such like that. Um, we, and then for all the other content, I was doing a lot of pretty like heavy manipulation to it to kind of like make it our own essentially. Um, so there there didn't end up being anything that we needed to like specifically get the rights for. Mm -hmm. Like we used some like debate footage from both the U S Congress and the house of commons that they both make like publicly available. Mm -hmm. right. So like, thankfully there wasn't anything like heavily copyrighted or anything that we needed to use for the show. Right. Um, that's great. Uh, and uh, what about, you said it was in the round, were you projecting that all on the floor um, or do you have screens behind the audience, or how did that work? We had three projectors. Uh, Lachlan Johnson did the set design for that. So the floor had like a big white circle that was a project projection surface, and then in two of the four corners were these abstract trees that also functioned as projection surfaces. Uh, that's, that's a great solution. I mean, uh, and one that, man, like... It's so far beyond the front projection on a psych or a scrim kind of work that was being totally. done a long time ago, right? And it seems so integrated. I love, I saw a production, uh, and I spoke about it on the show a while ago, of Dr. Silver this year, which was um, Britta and Fallon Johnson's piece for Modern Times Stage. Um, Modern Times Stage? Modern Stage? Modern Times Theater Company. Uh, it'll, that'll be in the show notes if I screw that up. Um, but, uh, and video was, again, they had projected at specific points in the room and very subtly supporting the work. And it seems like video design and projection design has sort of come into its own as a fully integrated thing, not just replacing the set or not just, you know, as background or or to make up for lack of other budgets, right? Like it seems like it's a fully formed thing these days, um, which is remarkable. Yeah, that's uh, sort of the number one thing I learned from Robert conceptually about video was like, don't use it just as a backdrop, like find ways to integrate it more fully into the show, like whether it's immersive or whether it's broken up over a bunch of tiny smaller screens or anything so it's not just this like monolithic image upstage center uh and uh you said the show toured to ottawa um did you have it in the round in ottawa as well like how did you translate well the first time we did the show it was fully in the round at the gateway studio mm -hmm. and then a year later we did it at the fire hall arts center mm -hmm. in vancouver the Anvil Center in New West, mm -hmm. and then we took it to uh, 
a festival in Ottawa. So because the Ottawa festival was like a deep three-quarter thrust, we sort of re-blocked it and did it in deep three-quarter thrust in the anvil and fire hall as well. So we kept the same floor projection and the two corner video screens, but just basically chopped one audience section off. But we very much made the made the choice that to sort of fit it to that Ottawa Undercurrents Festival, since we had so such a limited setup time there, so that we never we would never have to reblock anything once we actually got there. Yeah, it's a clever solution. That's 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 awesome. Um, oh, great! So, uh, anything else we should talk about as far as important work that you uh, that you wanted to talk about? Maybe the stuff you've uh, been nominated for Jesse's for, like Indian Arm or um, uh, Peter and the Starcatcher, is actually they did that at Shaw a little while ago, right? A couple of years yeah. ago. Um, uh, uh, anything there that catches your eye as far as, as, far as what you want to? talk about or uh... Uh, Peter and the Starcatcher is probably the best design I've ever done I mm-hmm. think yeah. although that's 100% because it was an all LED rig oh wow that's it, great it was the first show that it was a show that opened the arts club's uh, BMO center uh, and it's a tension grid with a 100% LED rig which that's my dream come true at like I love using LEDs and color changing technology yeah and that was the first show I'd ever done with a full um, LED rig. So just the ability to have every any light be any color all of the time, and especially a show like Peter and the Starcatcher that exists in that sort of magic realism place. Uh, it was the ideal rig for a show like that. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, and what kind of, like, was it all Lux, like uh, the Source 4... Um LEDs plus like color blast or some other kind of wash light or like how, what was the rig there like? Uh, it was all uh, color source spots, mm-hmm. the source for LEDs. Some of them with the psych adapters, some of them with with the Fresnel adapters, mm-hmm. and then four uh, Roby moving LED moving heads as well. Right, that's terrific. How do you find the Fresnel adapters of the ATC? I do not care for them. Yes, at I know. All. No, uh, one, no one does, right? Really dislike them. Like I find the flood spot. Mm is terrible yeah. on them and i would i would rather have all source for leds and basically just change barrels mm-hmm. rather than use the fin- i've been back there for another show since and i didn't even bother with the fresnel adapters yeah. like i disliked them so much on peter and the star catcher wow uh, that's remarkable um but still that's a great um like that's something that i've never experienced <laughs> like all this led technology again is is sort of was not around when I was when I was, you know, designing. So yeah, it was uh, grim going back to a non LED rig on the next show. That's for sure. And like, what do you mean I have to pick gel colors? Like, yeah, what is this the nineteen fifties? <laughs> that's awesome, uh, terrific. Um, and uh, any projection, any video on that, or was that just uh, that was lighting design? Just lighting design. Yeah, just lighting design. <laughs> just yeah, no, right. Um, awesome. Um, you've also done some technical direction. Uh, let's talk about your time at Shaw because you assisted there um, pretty soon after you left or you finished at UBC, right? Totally. Uh, in 2011, 2012, two years, right? Yeah, like I assisted Alan Brody in 2009, uh, which was, I've never learned more about design than the two shows that I assisted mm-hmm. Alan at, at uh, Bard with. Mm-hmm. And like he didn't need an assistant at all. Like, he did it out of the goodness of his heart and paid me out of his own pocket, uh, which was, and we've remained friends to this day and I'm incredibly grateful um, to him for it. But he basically said, you know, like, Hey, like you should apply to assist at Shaw. And he was designing a lot at Shaw at the time. So uh, I applied to both uh, Shaw and Stratford just seemed like the thing to do, but Shaw was definitely where I wanted to go because that's where Alan was designing. And I met Kevin Lamotte and had an incredible meeting with him. So, you know, was very sure that Shaw was where I wanted to go to assist. And thankfully, they accepted me and spent two years there. And again, like the time assisting Kevin and Jock Monroe and Louise Guinard at Shaw and the time assisting Alan at Bard, like, that's where I really learned to be a lighting designer. 
Yeah, it is remarkable. We've made this point a, a number of times where assisting, I mean, this is a, this is, you can, lots of people don't assist. You can develop a career that way, but it's a, it's an experience that you will always take something away from and will make you a better designer every time. Right? Absolutely. Like yeah. the first show that I did there was Candida with assisting Jock Monroe. And it was very much a just like realistic interior drawing room. And I remember sort of like thinking about being like, well, this is going to be like boring and I'm going to learn nothing. And it was exactly the opposite. Like the amount of detail and subtlety that Jock approached that show with, like I learned things on that show that I still use to this day to light those sort of very subtle interior time of day pieces that I never would have learned without watching someone who was really like a master at their craft like Jock was. Yeah, it's very true. I remember uh, when I was uh, assisting there, even just small, subtle things I'd never considered, uh, especially like, for example, with um, when someone turns a light on and you have a practical on stage, uh, and uh, obviously the, because of the small wattage and it's a point source, you're going to see the practical light up way before anything else. And uh, most of the time you see people just give the whole thing one, ch- one time. People like they, they you know, fake the switch. And then the whole stage gets brighter, and you see this little practical blink on, and then the rest of the stage, like, like, uh, <laughs> like, like, over half a second comes up to full. Um, and Kevin uh, does this thing where he um, uh, has a part cue and delays the practical on, um, so it, it times with the ramp up of like the seventeen, you know. In like one case, you've got above, so it makes a huge difference. And I never thought about that before, but it, there's lots of stuff just like that where you go, "Why didn't I figure this out?" Like the only place I'm going to learn this is at assisting with the um, sort of masters at Shaw and Stratford. Right? Absolutely, yeah. I had never even really seen like a section drawing before. Right. Uh, before I saw, and I saw Kevin drawing doing like a hand drawn section one day. Mm-hmm. You know, and me being young was like hand drawn side. Like, what do you need that for, basically? And then he sort of sat me down and actually showed me how it actually worked. And obviously, designers use digital versions now, which I do as well. But learning those basics like that from Kevin, I, I can't imagine where I'd be as a designer without having so much time with both with Kevin and Al, Alan specifically. Um, that's also I don't want to I want to don't want to put too fine a point on that, but always do a section. <laughs> if yes. You're, if you're starting out as a lighting designer, you don't do a section. You will be surprised by everything. Masking your shots will be wrong. Like, come on, do a section. Again, lots of people don't. Yeah. It's remarkable how many people get away with like, ah, it'll be fine. Especially in smaller spaces, right? Little studio spaces. And you're like, no. Mm-hmm. You got even then you got to do a section because you're going to be hitting the light in front of it or the front front row or something or. Like it's always it's it'll save your bacon every single time. Hundred percent agreement. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Well, um, uh, let's talk about your work with the ADC. So you have been on the board now for a while, but you are an ADC member, uh, Associated Designers of Canada member. Uh, again, right out the gate, um, uh, joining in what twenty twelve or twenty eleven? Yeah, I think I, I think twenty eleven. I think I was still at Shaw. Mm. It was at twenty eleven, and basically. Alan and Kevin were like, hey, this is a thing you should do. And I was like, all right, I'm doing it. That if you think it's a good idea, then I'm on board. Excellent. And now you're on the, uh, you're at, and now you are on the board Correct. of the ADC. Uh, tell me about that work and um, what you're, what you were hoping to accomplish uh, out here. So this is the, you're, you're the, the board, you're on the national board. Correct. It's our regional thing, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so there's nine board members, I think, mm-hmm. uh, two from here in Vancouver, me and Carmen Alatore as well. And again, it was, this is sort of the, these are the things I wanted to do coming out of high school to be some sort of like social or labor activist. Mm -hmm. Um, And I remember when I was, I was in New York City in 2015 and 2016 and sort of moved back to Vancouver in 2016. And Carmen said like, hey, you should join the board. And I was like, uh, I don't know. And she's like, you should join the board. And I was like, all right, sounds good. Um, and so became a board member. And 
almost immediately felt like this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Like this is what I was essentially like put on earth to do this kind of um, organizing work uh, essentially. So I think, I think I might still be the youngest member on the board. I'm not exactly positive on that point, but certainly one thing that I wanted to do was ensure that younger and emerging designers sort of had a strong voice um, on the board and also to ensure that Vancouver designers um, had a strong voice on the board as well. Yeah, if there's one thing, uh, first of all, I, I wanted to just mention this um, while we're talking as well is, Connor, you're the one who sort of got me connected to everyone out here. Uh, when I, like when I was looking to come to Vancouver, Mary Kerr first approached me. And then uh, it, it suddenly, because of her and Susan Benson and Michael Woodfield, I want to come out and interview them. But I thought, if I'm out here, like, why don't I make a big trip of it and talk to everyone out here that I'm not going to have a chance to talk to back in, um, in Ontario? And certainly you were the one who connected me to everyone out here and, you know, give me ideas of who I should talk to and who I should contact. So, um, and one of the things that has come up on the show is that there's an obvious, uh, as much as we, uh, social media seems to have erased barriers between people, there is still a big barrier between British Columbia and the rest, really, of Canada uh, in transfer of talent and, uh, and, and, communication um and hopefully this you know my trip out here and the eight the nine designers i'm going to talk to out here uh will help to improve communication and to to you know improve sort of the cohesiveness uh of the design community in canada um but that i imagine that's part of your work on adc and trying to advocate for british columbia and the vancouver designers specifically uh at the adc right for a national um at the ABC, for sure. Yeah. Um, but also, again, not specifically for not specifically for Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Also, like I think, I like to think that Carmen and I hopefully do a good job of voicing Vancouver concerns, but also looking at the entire national mm-hmm. community as a whole and trying to ensure that everyone gets representation, not just Toronto and Vancouver, for example. Absolutely. Uh, so I'm hoping to talk to April Vixo uh, in uh, Calgary when I'm there in February. But um, tell me about the direction that you think that the board is going. And I mean, the ADC, I feel, has been rejuvenated in the past, you know, five to ten years with younger designers. And, and this uh, certainly with the pressure put on by, by um, the economics of theater in Canada. Uh, tell me about where you think ADC is going and the priorities that uh, you want to see it um, uh, focus on. Yeah, it seems to be that there's a lot of sort of youthful energy around ADC right now, which is uh, spectacular to see. And I think a big part of that has been uh, the Designers Guild uh, Facebook group that Richard Farron and Michelle Ramsey started. Like that has, I think, probably the best tool right now for Canadian designers to sort of be part of these larger conversations with each other and Strongly urge anyone listening to become a member of the Designers Guild. Um, In terms of priorities, I think that what's most important for ADC is to not fall into any kind of like false dichotomy about emerging designers versus established designers. Um, I think that both groups... I don't think there is a dichotomy, essentially. I think that we are all just designers, and there are some issues that affect emerging designers more. There are some issues that affect established designers more. Mm-hmm. But that we really need to work to have like greater solidarity amongst all of us to ensure that we're lifting all designers um, up together. Mm-hmm. And I think the board is moving in that direction and working to make sure that we're addressing the needs of the entire design community as a whole, mm-hmm. both from coast to coast to coast, yeah. and also across all disciplines and across all um, experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and what about, um, like in the U.S., uh, the United Scenic, United Scenic Artists, which is the um, 
for the longest time was the union that represented um, designers on Broadway and certain regionals and things. Uh, they're uh, now partnered with the IA. They're part of the IA in the U.S. Now, I'm a bit... I don't know when this happened because I missed it uh, because because they weren't part of the IA um, a long time ago. Right? They, they, they've only recently sort of joined in solidarity with become a subsidiary of that, which has given them power, I think, or given them more power. Um, what do you think about this debate about the ADC and how, and is it a union? Is it an association? Where should it go? Like, like what do you think we should be working towards? Uh, I think that... It's certainly a sensitive issue and that there's a broad range of uh, opinions uh, inside the entire design community. And I think all are equally valid. I don't think think there's any right answer to it. Um, I think there's no doubt that we need to be much more uh, solidified as a community and much better at advocating for one another and for standing up for one another and not undercutting one another as well. And whether that happens through uh, ADC becoming stronger uh, as a professional association or going down the route towards unionization, I think that's like an active conversation that needs to remain uh, present. I don't think there's any clear answers right now beyond the obvious of it's clearly a lot of designers struggling, and so we need to find solutions towards making sure that designers aren't overworked and undercompensated. And do you have any notion besides the obvious kind of financial crunch about why the kind of brunt of cuts seems to be falling on design and not necessarily the technicians or the actors or administration? Well, I think certainly a part of that is that technicians are represented by IATSE Mm -hmm. and that performers, directors, and stage managers are represented by equity. Mm -hmm. And even though it's not a, even though it's a professional association like ADC, it has a stronger, strong enough contract to sort of operate as a de facto union. Mm -hmm. So I don't think there's any particular, animosity or avarice mm-hmm. from producers or producing companies towards designers. But I think the mere fact that designers don't have the same codified contractual pr- protections that other uh, people working in the live performance industry has means that, unfortunately, you know, finan- financial pressures can be sort of borne more by designers than by other uh, live entertainment professionals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Um, now, you've also started um, the Vancouver Design Forum, right? Is that what it's called? Have uh, I got that right? Yes. Yes. Um, when, what, was, what, what was that born out of, and um, what's the mandate for that? So group? the Vancouver Design Forum started as sort of an idea from... Ken McKenzie, ADC president, and Gail Packwood, the ADC executive director, uh, about finding a way for Vancouver designers to band together and address some of their concerns on a local level, um, working in concert with ADC. So in, in no way as a replacement or as an alternative to ADC. Um, there are, at the time of this recording, uh, 10 core members right now. So I'm one of 10 core members. Um, Most of the core membership are ADC members, but it's a mixture of ADC and non-ADC members that looks to both uh, deal with problems on a sort of micro local level that uh, doesn't, that sort of make less sense for the ADC national executive to be working on but then also to try to ensure that uh, the needs and the struggles of the entire Vancouver design community, both ADC and non-ADC, are brought forward and addressed as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, And have you been meeting with producers or having discussions with um, companies out here about how to address these issues? 
Yeah, we had an initial meeting between some of the forum members and independent producers in May of 2018. And I think it's likely that at some point in 2019, we'll have a sort of meeting that's open to the entire theater community between all designers and all independent producers to sort of discuss the struggles that designers are facing and hopefully for both sides to be able to educate each other and to find like real concrete ways that um, we can lessen the sort of overwork and undercompensation struggles that designers face. Uh, and I always wonder, like I've been talking to a few senior designers who have established careers working at all the regionals, they work nationally, or they've got university um, tenureship, so they've got a, like a, they've got an income, and they're established, and they, you know, something as simple as they bought houses before the housing, you know, before the housing prices skyrocketed in Vancouver. Um, how does one make a living in Vancouver? Like, I don't, <laughs> like, it, like, I, like, I move, a lot of people in Toronto have moved to Hamilton and moved to you know, um, Oshawa or up to Barrie or something, and they can still, there's a lot of, a lot of infrastructure still to get into the city. It's not great, but, you know, people, there's, there seems like there's more options. And to be honest, our housing market is still, like I can rent an apartment in, in Toronto for not an unreasonable amount of money and feel like that is a bit sustainable. But how does it work down here? Like, tell us about the struggles that's happening in Vancouver to make art and to live here. That's a great, great question. Um, Housing costs are certainly, you know, being felt by everyone in the city, uh, not just artists. So hopefully having a sort of more progressive mayor and premier will address that. Uh, but in terms of how to make a living, like we, I do see designers that are sort of moving out of Vancouver, either to the North Shore or further south to Richmond or further east to Burnaby and Surrey and New West and yeah, making those long commutes in and out of the city. Or I think what happens more likely is that people just take on so much work in order to sort of pay bills that they end up overworked and burnt out. And, you know, the the catalyzing event that led to sort of these the discussions to start the Vancouver Design Forum was three sort of well-known established designers told me that they were essentially leaving the business mm -hmm. because 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 of the costs and pressures they were facing and like it's always it's always upsetting and, and unfortunate when emerging designers have to leave the business mm -hmm. but when it became clear that like well-established senior designers were also um being forced out by being undercompensated and overworked like I think it became clear that there is a crisis in Vancouver mm -hmm. um, in terms of having a sustainable design community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that uh, that makes sense, and it's uh, I can only like I like as a lighting designer, I was able to book enough work and probably make a decent living. Uh, I think make a decent living. Um, obviously, you're working a lot, but certainly I had a better time of it than costume designers, for example who uh, were notoriously under, like they they worked way more hours than lighting designers and often got paid the same um, for way more work, um, which is, obviously, you know, that's a gendered issue as well, uh, unfortunately. But um, now, like that's not even good enough anymore. Just the, like you can only do so much work and your work suffers. Like you, know, you can't, like especially, I can't, I can't imagine doing video design. You talk about hundreds of hours of work on this one show um, I don't think I've worked for hundreds of hours on a show ever. Um, certainly not as a lighting designer, uh, unless it's toured for months. Like, uh, that's a struggle. Yeah, certainly, I think, I think lighting designers feel the burden less so than other designers, although I think lighting designers also are absolutely overworked and uncompensated. But you absolutely nail, uh, nailed on the head in terms of costume designers, like, Without a doubt, they, I think, face the most structural issues. And especially here in Vancouver, it's this weird expectation that when you hire a costume designer, you also get a head of wardrobe without additional compensation, which is like disgraceful, like, absolutely disgraceful. And I, it's one of the issues that 
uh, both ADC and the forum, I think, are working on addressing and raising because no one ever expects the set designer to just be the head carpenter without additional compensation. But you know, every show that hires a costume designer should hire a head of wardrobe or pay that costume designer a full head of wardrobe fee. But the way that it's currently working right now is like, I can't imagine the pressures and the stresses that costume designers face with the amount of work for such minuscule compensation. Yeah, it's remarkable. Now you have uh, not just taken on this role as a as a labor organizer, you know, or or uh, you know, labor justice kind of um, advocate. Uh, but you've also gone back to school to study it, to get more training, and to understand the problem and try to figure out solutions. Uh, tell me about that decision to go back to school um, and what you are focusing on. Absolutely. So sort of the based on the first year that I spent on the board like I fell in love with working on the board and and the the work we were doing but I wanted to be better at it and I had no idea how to be better at it basically um so I did like a tiny amount of research and SFU has a labor studies program so I contacted uh, Professor Kendra Strauss, who runs the labor studies program at SFU, and was like, hey, like, here's my deal, and I'm interested in how to be better. Mm -hmm. She said, like, come on out and we'll have a chat. Mm -hmm. And at that point, like, I had no idea, like, maybe I would take an undergraduate course or something. I had no idea. And we talked for a few minutes, and she said, like, well, it sounds like you should do a master's and I guess kind of similar to when like Alan was like hey you should assist at Shaw or when Alan and Kevin had said like hey you should be an ADC member mm. I was like oh all right like you're an adult authority figure this sounds like a great idea um but we talked more about sort of the work that uh I was doing at ADC and the sort of interest in finding a way for Canadian designers to be more organized. Um, and she's uh, one of the leading voices in the Canadian labor movement and basically said, you know, there's a lot of people writing about precarious creative labor. No one has ever like written a word about Canadian theater designers ever. So there's like a niche to fill, but this is also... Um, a good opportunity to add to the larger uh, scholarship. So she was like, she said, uh, apply to do a master's of sociology because labor studies doesn't have a master's designation at SFU, but you know, she'll, she would be my advisor and it'll basically be a labor studies masters through the sociology department. Uh, so I applied and got accepted, which was shocking to me. Um, but I've completed uh, my first term there, basically just uh, getting required coursework out of the way. But I'm building towards writing a thesis about this process of organizing Canadian designers through ADC and, and the forum, but also sort of looking forward to like what, what our long-term goals and what our overall path should be towards addressing the issues we face in the design community. That's remarkable, the, the fact that First of all, out of nowhere, she said, I'll be your advisor. <laughs> I know. And you should apply. Like, that's a, that's a great story. I love that. Um, I also, uh, as a, as a, I'm a QP member, um, as a, as a paramedic, and I was a, I still am a union steward and did some organizing around LGBTQ health, uh, uh, LGBTQ, um, labor, uh, justice. And, uh, we have a lot of support from our parent organization, right? There's courses you can take. Like I, I wasn't a labor, I knew nothing about the labor movement prior to, you know, or I had a notion, but I didn't know how it worked or, you know, what the responsibilities of a steward were, et cetera. But there's a lot of support from our parent organization. There's training programs and everything else. Um, artists are not trained in any kind of labor um, uh, knowledge at all. Like, and it's, and I'm glad you used the word precarious because it is, it is the definition of precarious work, right? It's contract work. It's two, three, four weeks at a time, uh, maybe six months of year at the bigger places, but 
um, you know, arts workers are precarious workers, period. And the only ones who aren't, which is ironic, are the ones who are controlling the purse strings and applying for grants. Uh, and as much as, like, I don't, like, I'm not here to make an argument that arts administrators are, like, driving gold-plated Cadillacs down the street. <laughs> like, it's still a, it's still a struggle to, to work in a, uh, arts, uh, as an arts administrator, especially in a small organization where it may even, you know, that may even be precarious work. But they've got the most, the least precarious job. Absolutely. Uh, and they're the, you know, the ones making decisions that are affecting the most precarious workers. And that relationship is not formal, right? It's a, it's constantly being negotiated. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I think a greater understanding of just how precarious work as a designer is, is something that needs to be brought to the forefront of the discussions we're having. Mm-hmm. Like I, I know designers who have had, you know, close to, if not full nervous breakdowns, just over economic stress and economic anxiety about, you know, I don't have any work booked in the future, but I sure do have rent payments due in the future. And the stress of that can be awfully overwhelming. Uh, Absolutely, artists, I think, uh, need far more education about um, what the labor movement does and can do for people. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, uh, Kyla Gardner, who's a design professor at SFU Theater right now, who I have known, I did a little bit of teaching there last year, Mm -hmm. Uh, she is co-teaching a course next term all about uh, labor uh, organizations and the labor movement in the arts. So I think me and another designer are going to go in and talk a little bit about uh, what ADC does, but they're going to cover IATSE and equity, but also, you know, QP where it overlaps in terms of like university employees and such. But I think it's a big step forward to be sort of talking to students about the labor organizations that exist in the arts because... I never learned any of that as a student, and I wish I had for sure. Uh, yeah, and the fact that if we're training TDs and PMs, like you're going to have to be, you're the employer working with the IA contract or the equity, you know, as a production stage manager or as a an AD working with the with the equity agreements. And there's what nine of them or something. There's like a whole like many many different ones, and. Um, and it's a, it's a, at large organizations, that's a big job and you need, you can't, like, it's difficult to learn on your feet. Absolutely. You make a lot of mistakes, right? And I think there's also an, an opportunity for much more solidarity between ADC and Equity and IATSE, for example. Like, those three organizations represent almost everybody um, working in the live performance industry and just a greater understanding of, what each organization does and how they can support each other, mm-hmm. I think is absolutely paramount. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, that's terrific. I, 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 this has been a bit of a, uh, the last, you know, half of this discussion has been a bit dark or a bit <laughs> like fraught with all of the problems that we're facing, like in the arts and in theater in Canada and Vancouver. Um, but you're still working the business and you still, uh, are optimistic optimistic about the work you're doing, and it sounds like the work that you're doing is also like invigorating and has a larger reach beyond just entertainment and and telling and storytelling. Um, so it sounds like you're still you're an optimistic, uh, you know, uh, you, like you have a belief that this is a good job to be in and that your your career is is moving forward. Is that correct? Oh, like, absolutely. I, yeah. I I think all of all of the solutions are within our grasp, which just requires more solidarity and organization amongst designers in order to get to that place where we are properly supported and respected and compensated and can truly um, be actualized as artists. Mm -hmm. But I absolutely see that happening in the future, for sure. That's great. That's remarkable. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you very much. And I'd also like to thank you for all the work you do on this podcast. Like going back and listening to them has been an amazing experience for me towards learning Canadian theater history and getting to know a bit about sort of designers in Toronto that we don't have a lot of contact with here in BC. So thank you so much for everything you do. Well, you're very welcome. Uh, And I would encourage uh, everyone again to go to, I know Facebook's a bit 
of a problem in itself, but I am a member and or I, I subscribe to it. And uh, go to the design forum. It's even if it's if you just join Facebook just to to, to participate in that forum. It is a closed uh, private group where we can have frank discussions about all the struggles and various companies that are, you know, giving us consternation and to find solidarity among people and have a discussion about other larger issues as well. So go to the Design Forum. Designers uh, Guild. Sorry, Designers Guild, excuse me, and uh, and become a member. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much. That was lighting projection and set designer Connor Moore speaking to me from his home in December 2018. Next time, my last in the Vancouver series with an interview with Michael Whitfield. The music for this podcast is by Vern Good with voiceover by Gabriel Cropley. Please go to Apple Podcasts and give us a review. It'll help get the word out about this podcast and share the history of theater design in Canada. And you can follow us on Twitter at TheTitleBlockCA and on Facebook.com slash TheTitleBlockPodcast. You can send comments and requests by email to TheTitleBlock at gmail.com. Don't forget that if you like the show, support us on Patreon.com. And feel free to share this with your friends, colleagues, students, and teachers. Or listen to it while you ponder the effect a closed shop would have as a Canadian theatre designer. I'm Michael Cruz, and I will see you next time on The Title Block.